Sometimes we make decisions that take us down a path we don't anticipate. That's what happened to me back in 2021. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I'm the managing producer of podcasts at Canada's National Observer. That spring of 2021, I came across a story about a biologist in a remote corner of British Columbia fighting for wild salmon. The article was an excerpt from her about-to-be-published book, Not On My Watch. I bought the book and read it, and when I turned the book's final page, I knew this story needed to be a podcast. But it took months to gather the documents, track people down, and travel to BC to talk to people. And as we know, time is money. That's why I'm asking you to make a decision to contribute to our annual fundraising and subscription drive to raise $100,000 by May 24th. We need your support to create more podcasts like The Salmon People. The easiest way to support us is to purchase a one-year subscription for $50. Another powerful way to support our podcasts is to make a direct donation. Go to nationalobserver.com forward slash donate to make your contribution to our $100,000 goal. Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay, and I'm the Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer. In Hot Politics, I examine who has the best ideas on important issues, especially the climate crisis. This show is made possible by listeners like you. This is episode 13. What's the beef with livestock production? Well, we'll get to the meat, pun intended, of our critical topic for our planet's future. Sustainable livestock production. And no, that is not an oxymoron. There's no denying that livestock production is an essential source of food and livelihood for millions of people worldwide. But how we produce and consume animal products has significant environmental consequences like deforestation, greenhouse gas emissions, and excessive use of resources like land and water. According to a 2021 United Nations report, the livestock sector accounts for almost 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions, and cattle contribute the majority of that. Today I'll be joined by experts in the field who will talk about the challenges of transitioning to more sustainable production. And they'll have advice about making changes to your diets that won't rob meat eaters of their favorite foods, like that steak on the barbecue. First up is Alberta rancher Sean McGrath, who operates a fifth-generation family farm in Vermilion, Alberta. That's about 100 kilometers east of Edmonton, near the Saskatchewan border. Sean says he runs a sustainable cattle ranch under fairly simple principles. Principles that won him an Environmental Stewardship Award in 2014. Sean McGrath, welcome to Hot Politics. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you first of all set the scene? What is your ranch? Describe it. Our home ranch is the south end of the prairie parkland. So it's actually one of the most endangered ecosystems in the world. And our ranch is a bit unique compared to others in our neighborhood because we have such a large quantity of native rangeland. So our home ranch is about 90 plus percent native. So that's land that hasn't been cultivated or plowed or disturbed since the last glaciation. We have a lot of slope. So we have lots of coolies and river valleys. So a coolie would basically be a valley with a small creek running through the bottom. You know, and our, our operation is is primarily grass-based, so we don't own a combine, we don't do a lot of cropping, it's all grass and cows is kind of the, how we do things. 
we're a cow-calf operation, so we primarily, so basically we have mother cows, we have calves every year. I would describe us as sort of high-tech traditional, so we use a lot of technology, but we still chase cows with a horse. So it's, how many how, how many cows do you have? Um, right now, I think there's 178 cows and then calves from last year. If we can get out of this drought pattern when we're fully stocked, we'll be pretty close to 300 mother cows. So on your website, you say that your mission is to produce and market the beef in an environmentally, socially, and economically sustainable manner. How do you do that? I mean, to be honest, it's always a work in progress. So, I mean, the economic part is we try and control our costs and we try and have the price we receive be higher than the price that costs us to produce it. And that's actually a really important thing because if you have no profitability, you can't invest it in, in sort of the environmental side. On the environmental side, we do a ton of things. So biggest thing that we do is with our grazing of these cows, we try and mimic sort of the natural patterns of evolution of that landscape. So we'll graze a portion of the ranch or a small portion of the ranch and then move cattle off and allow that grass a chance to recover and regrow. It stimulates growth and, and helps sequester carbon in the soil. And then from a social perspective, some of it could be things like appearing on this podcast just to um, kind of share what happens, you know, and it's, it's everything from coaching ball to donating to a hospital, to providing hamburger to a food bank. I mean, there's a whole list of things, but yeah, those, those three things together really kind of create the legs of the sustainability stool. So help me understand this. When owls graze on grass, that means that they're eating less feed, which comes down to a lot of pressure because of the way it's produced and so on and so forth, right? Is, is that about how it works? Yeah, so so a cow it needs to consume about two and a half percent of her body weight every day in dry matter. So she needs to eat a certain amount of feed every day. I mean, the same as you and I. Our advantages in in the way we do it is one, the cow goes to the feed rather than us using fossil fuels to bring the feed to the cow or produce the feed for the most part. Obviously, there's times a year where we kind of have to adjust that a little bit when there's two feet of snow or something like that. But the other thing that happens is, so when that grass grows, and, and the analogy I'd use for, you know, folks that maybe aren't living in a rural community, when your lawn grows, you don't mow it every day. You might mow it once a week. So when the grass grows, if it's not grazed because it's evolved under grazing, when the grass grows, if you just leave it, it will basically, in our arid environment, it will basically lignify and it can smother the ground a little bit when it dies, but it, it will basically nitrify and it just won't break down. And so what happens is those nutrients aren't cycled back into the soil to feed the soil bugs and feed soil carbon. So you basically create a stagnant system that stops. Um, so what we do with the cow is the grass grows, gets to a certain point, the cow grazes it off. Obviously the cow's going to grow and the calf's going to grow, but she's actually, the bugs in her rumen are cycling that, the nutrients in that grass and making it bioavailable to the, to the soil bugs so that those minerals and those nutrients are cycled back through the soil. That stimulates the soil complex, stimulates the plant. The plant regrows instead of having old dead leaves, it's producing new green shoots that are capturing sunlight. And that's what drives that carbon cycle and pulls the carbon underground. So they're kind of the, a little bit of the linchpin to the system, I guess, is the way to think about it. So you're working pretty hard to reduce your carbon footprint then? Well, it's, yeah, I mean, economically it, it makes sense, but once you understand that that carbon sequestration is what drives the system, 
for the most part, there's some nuances, but then your goal is, is to optimize or maximize that sequestration. So, you know, ranching seems really complicated, but it's in a way it's, it's very, very simple. Like I use clean air and sunshine and I use plants to capture that clean air and sunshine and cows are the way that I market it. So then what do you say to someone who says, yeah, beef, that's bad for the planet? Mother nature is not black and white. So we live in, like I say, one of the most endangered landscapes, ecosystems in the world without animals grazing to maintain that biodiversity. So there's, there's more than just carbon, there's biodiversity, there's water filtration, there's pollinator habitat, there's wildlife habitat. So, you know, if we just pull cows out of that system, as an example, something's going to happen with that land. And so someone's either going to come in and till it, releasing 10,000 years of stored carbon and simplifying the, that biodiversity because they're going to put in a monocrop, right? So wheat or canola or, you know, it, it's not as, it's not as simple. You know, I don't think anybody's diet should be completely meat. And if you don't believe in eating meat, that's fine. I mean, that's a personal choice, but just try and understand or, or explain that, like I say, mother nature works in shades of gray and it's, it's not as simple as just yes or no all or none, because there are, there are consequences to removing that grazing from the landscape. So if I go to a store and I, you know, I want to identify meat that is grown using some of the techniques that you've talked about, would there be a way for me to know how you produce that meat? There's some, definitely some initiatives. Um, there's been a lot of work done on, on this Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, some of the verifications. So there's products that are VBP plus it's a label that's starting to appear on more packages of beef. Basically, it's an accountability program for, for ranchers. It's, it's voluntary. We provide information on, for example, health treatments to our cattle that are auditable to, you know, to make sure we're following the rules and that we're doing things properly. But it also has some additional pillars in terms of environmental practices, feed management, those types of things that kind of focus more on some of those other pillars of sustainability. Energy use is an example. Y your, your production sounds very interesting. It's easy on the environment. Are you an outlier? We're certainly pushing the boundaries. You know, and the way I think about it, everybody wants to do better because everybody, like in terms of the rural community, I mean, people live where the environment is. Nobody is intentionally trying to hurt the environment, right? They're, they are making progress towards improving it. For us, I mean, it's it's a core value. So we're, we, I mean, we're pushing the boundaries. I'll I'll tell you that. So then, what would the challenges be for other ranchers who wanted to push the boundaries in the same direction that you are? Cattle production hasn't been extremely profitable in the last even decade or more. You know, and and so if I were to give you an example, so we have a solar water pump. It pumps water out of the creek, so our cows don't have to access the water and hurt the riparian zones. And it has quite a bit of lift and it'll water a lot of cows. That water pump is the price of a small car. If operations are struggling with profitability, they're somewhat less likely to spend $20,000 to pump water out of a creek, right? Even though there's benefits and they appreciate those benefits and they would love to do that kind of thing. So when we talk about those solar powered pumps, for example, price of a small car, uh, which is not insignificant. Is there a role for government? Should should governments be stepping in to help subsidize this the way that they subsidize other industrial sectors? I do think government has a significant role to play. And one of the reasons, and I, and I think of it not as a subsidy, but 
there's a lot of public good that comes off these ranches. So it's, is wildlife habitat a public good, right? Is water filtration into your watersheds a public good? Pollinators are a public good. I mean, they, they benefit the people on the landscape, but they also benefit everyone else as Canadians. So I do think that government has a significant role to play. The challenge is building a broad scope program that can address issues locally and yet still be accountable to Canadians, right? So it's not an easy task, but there's certainly a role for government. Well, Sean McGrath, I wish you all the luck in the world and thank you very much for this conversation. Awesome. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Ryan Katz Racine has a few things in common with Sean McGrath. He's also a farmer and dedicated to sustainability. He's a professor in the Faculty of Social Sciences and Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. He studies climate change policy debates, including those around sustainable agriculture. Ryan katz Rosine, welcome to Hot Politics. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. The livestock industry has been under a lot of pressure. A lot of that pressure has to do with what are perceived as the lack of sustainable practices. And I'm wondering if you can talk just in general about that. Oh, gosh, where to begin? I mean, there's no doubt that the livestock industry has been under a tremendous amount of pressure. And you're seeing all kinds of responses from people saying we need to entirely move away from this industry to we need to downscale and shift. And there's also a tremendous amount of attention into changing the way we produce foods to be more sustainable. But what is it about the industry that is seen as so damaging or potentially damaging to the climate? There was a big report released by the FAO a while now, you know, over a decade ago. And the FAO stands for? Sorry, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Great. The U you. UN uh, agency that deals with food and agriculture. Mm -hmm. yep. And the FAO had this report called Livestock's Long Shadow. It's about the, the entire food system is responsible for about a third of global emissions. And the livestock sector is a is a significant chunk of that. But it also had some interesting claims that have been kind of contentious. And one of them was that it said that the livestock sector was the same as the transport sector in terms of its contribution to global emissions. Some would argue that it's an unfair comparison. You know, when we're talking about transport emissions, uh, we're just basically looking at tailpipe emissions, right? So the CO2 that's coming out of the fuels in your car. Whereas for the livestock sector, that number in that report, which is about 18% of, of greenhouse gases, was the entire livestock supply chain. So it's not just the so-called tailpipe work. In the case of cows, it's coming out the front end and burps. It, it was feed production. It was even energy use to a certain extent in production and in the entire supply chain. Some people were arguing it was an unfair comparison. And we'll get to burps in a second because yeah. there's been a lot of talk about that as well. But yeah. so you're an expert on climate change and livestock in Ottawa, and your wife also raises cattle sheep next door in Quebec. And I'm wondering how, how, how these two realities come together for you. It's a blessing and a curse in the sense that I consider myself a, a climate activist and someone who's deeply concerned about climate change. It's I have colleagues who are essentially arguing that we need to move away from the livestock sector. And that's hard to square as someone who is involved in animal agriculture. But it's also a blessing in the sense that I've, I live in a community that is very much uh, agricultural. It's a rural community north of Ottawa. And there are a lot of small-scale agricultural producers who are producing 
meat among other things and, and animal products. And I get to kind of see and test out, you know, what would it, from a policy application, okay, it's one thing to say we need to, you know, phase out this type of production, but what would that actually look like? What would it mean for people on the ground who are involved in this industry? What would it mean for land use changes? What would it mean for food security? What would it mean for nutrition? And it's been interesting to attack this from both sides. Now, according to the UN, livestock accounts for over 15% of man-made greenhouse gases. And methane gas, which is a big one, and to clear up one thing right away, it's not farts, but burps, as you Most alluded to earlier. Mostly. Mostly, yeah. <laughs> so can you explain the feeding cycle of cattle so that we're clear about what this belching is all about? So basically, when cattle and other ruminants like sheep so these animals with these multi-chambered stomachs, they have bacteria in their guts that produce methane when they're digesting. And so when cattle eat their feed, whether it's grass or grains, they're producing a certain amount of methane, and that's being burped up in the form of enteric fermentation. This is a really big chunk of the climate pie, if you will, its contribution to greenhouse gases, mostly because methane is a really powerful greenhouse gas. Now, they have to eat, so <laughs> you can't starve them. So how do you get around this? How do you, how do you make them burp less? So the industry and response and the sort of the, the more industrialized approach to dealing with this problem is to primarily to reduce methane in cattle production and or capture methane from manure systems and use that methane in, a, in a, a form of renewable energy. So those are the two big categories. So the first one is essentially using feed additives like seaweed. There are forms of seaweed that actually inhibit the amount of methane that those bacteria in the cows. So there's all kinds of really interesting testing right now with, again, synthetic and natural uh, feed additives that can be fed to both dairy and beef cattle to essentially reduce the amount of methane that they're emitting. I'm not quite sure how discerning the, the palate of a cow would be, but mixing in the food with seaweed, I mean, would cows eat that stuff? You know, it's interesting. You don't have to add very much of this stuff. It's up to about 2% of the total feed uh, intake, and it can have a pretty pronounced impact. And because of this really powerful nature of methane that as a, as a very strong greenhouse gas that's very short-lived, so it's breaking down naturally in the atmosphere within, you know, 12 years or so. And so if we can achieve a situation where we're reducing the amount of methane that we're emitting today than what was emitted about 12 years ago or so, we're actually having a pronounced impact on cooling the climate. So we've talked about feed and changing the feed to reduce the amount of methane that is burped, but what are some of the other harmful aspects of livestock production? There's, you know, everything from air pollution to water pollution issues. One of the things here is that a lot of this has to do not with the animals themselves per se, but with the feed production. When you look at things like total emissions profile of the livestock sector, a good chunk of that is from deforestation pressures, particularly in the Amazon and Brazil. There is a, a pretty well-established idea that cattle production is one of the leading drivers of deforestation. I, I'm just wondering, you know, this production puts a lot of pressure on the environment, deforestation, for example. Mm -hmm. Couldn't one argue that, well, this is enough reason to just say, let's just reduce livestock production. The science is pretty clear. There's a lot of benefits to reducing the size of the livestock. 
then you have politics, right? Then you have society. And how do you do that in a way that's just for workers? How do you do that in a way that's not going to have other types of negative impacts? But I also think it's important to recognize there's a lot of benefits that are offered by the livestock sector and animal agriculture. One of the best examples of that is cattle and ruminants. You know, these animals that can eat forages and plant matter, particularly in land like where my farm is based, where it's really hard to grow crops in a you know meaningful sense. There's a lot of hills around where, where we live, and the, the soil is uh, very deep clay, and it's not a coincidence that most of the farmers have ruminant production, right? There's been some studies that show that if you totally phase out the use of ruminants of cattle and sheep, you lose the amount of land that can be put into food production. I think there's a lot of merits to reducing the, the centrality of animal foods in our diet, treating them as way more special foods. So throwing a steak on the barbecue would become a delicacy and not maybe an essential part of your diet then under this scenario. I think so. And, and I really like this message of like less and better. I know there are some criticisms of it, but I think it makes a lot of sense. If we take a look at Canadians, we eat about 25 kilograms of meat a year. That's a really big number. So how on earth do you convince people to cut back on their love of meat? To a certain extent, there is a, already some sort of momentum in that direction anyway. In Canada, for instance, we are eating less beef than we were 30, 40 years ago. It's kind of plateaued a little bit, but people are generally eating less of these foods with the combination of A, being offered viable alternatives that are tasty and affordable. Economics comes into this, food availability in terms of uh, access, in terms of affordability, sorry, is a key aspect of this. And, and the food guide plays a role in an institutional level in terms of shaping how, you know, people, you know, put together um, institutional diets. The focus also needs to be primarily, I would su suggest, at a level of production too. And this is not just producing meat more efficiently, although that's certainly a huge part of it, but also producing different types of foods and alternatives to change the market options, essentially. But we're not talking about cutting out production entirely. I don't think that makes sense in a Canadian context, particularly from the point of view of the geography of how we produce most of our food. Most of our food in this country is produced in the prairies. Most of the beef comes from the prairies. And this is a landscape that is originally mostly grassland habitat. And we have a real biodiversity crisis alongside the climate crisis that we can't forget about. I mean, if you had to choose from the point of view of sustaining healthy soil ecosystems and biodiversity in the soil and songbird habitat and grassland bird species and other animals at that trophic level, you would probably, I would imagine, you might want to pick something like cattle production because it's it's much more emblematic of, of what that, that native uh, species was with the bison, you know, ro roaming around the prairie. So obviously there's some limitations to that comparison. But that is a, a whole lot more, you know, biodiversity safe than, let's say, plowing it up on an annual basis and growing crops. I can just imagine that in addition to oil and gas, which is a real political wedge when it comes to East and West and the politics and all that, man, if you start talking about cutting back on meat and reducing meat and or cutting it out altogether, mm -hmm. that becomes another East-West wedge issue, a political issue. Oh, for sure. And I, I do think that 
this is going to become more politically contentious as our country struggles to reduce emissions and as we are continue to fail to really tackle the real bulk of the problem, which is fossil fuels, people are going to increasingly be looking at the livestock sector and it's going to be inc under increasing pressure. So when it comes to some of these techniques that you're talking about, is there a government involvement? Should governments be helping to pay for some of these uh, techniques? Mm -hmm. Overall, I would say that there is a need for more government involvement, particularly in the sense of being willing to tackle the problem. One example of this is the, the National uh, Emissions Reduction Plan that the federal government just released not too long ago. It's a, you know, over the five-year plan, agriculture was a, one of the only sectors actually that, that had no real intended reductions. And so I was a bit surprised that the federal government wasn't a little bit more involved in trying to to spearhead some of these emissions directives, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement there. Well, certainly an interesting political discussion when you talk about climate change and what should be done to combat it. Ryan Katz, uh, Razine, thank you very much for this. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Hey, uh, the pleasure's all mine. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Ryan and Sean grow food. My next guest studies how it's grown. And his research turns around conventional thinking about the biggest greenhouse gas emitters in food production. Ben Halpern is a marine ecologist and director at the University of California's National Center of Ecological Analysis and Synthesis in Santa Barbara. His title is a mouthful. Ben and his colleagues at the center mapped out for the first time the environmental footprint of the production of all foods. The research was recently published in the Journal of Nature Sustainability. Ben Halpern, welcome to Hot Politics. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with something that I found fascinating. And this research actually changed your eating habits. Yeah, it did. I now eat a little bit of chicken and I've cut out things like shrimp that I used to eat because of the results of this work. So yeah, my research has made a difference in my own personal eating habits. You also found out things that I guess would surprise a lot of people, right? Yeah, well, they surprised me too. You know, you read in the news about beef, how bad it is in many ways. And, you know, our research certainly confirmed that. There's many things about beef that are not great for the environment. But there were actually things that shot up the list of causing harm to the planet that I wasn't paying much attention to. For example, pigs. Pigs actually have a greater environmental footprint than do cows, at least the way that we measured it. And then some crops that people eat a lot, like rice and wheat, also shot up to the top of the list. These results were really surprising to me and probably not what a lot of people are thinking about when they're making diet choices. Wow. Pigs worse than cow burps. Yeah. Well, so on the climate emissions, cows are still worse. Uh, they, it's pretty hard to top cows. You know, they digest in many stomachs and burp and fart a lot, and that causes a ton of greenhouse gas emissions. But our study looked at not only greenhouse gas emissions, but also water use and pollution into those waterways and the disturbance of land or ocean to grow that food. And cumulatively across these four different ways that food production puts pressure on our environment, pigs, 
came out on top of cows because pigs have so much nutrient pollution associated with them. It's kind of overwhelming. If you've ever been near a pig farm, you know it. It stinks. It smells. There's so much pollution coming from that. And that, coupled with the climate emissions from pig production, puts them on top. We all think of cattle as being the worst climate emitters, but it turns out that goat, sheep, and pigs are worse. Can you dig into a little bit more as to why that is? Goats and sheep are also ruminants, so it's the same process that is causing cows to to have high emissions. And if you look at it per pound of beef or per pound of lamb, lamb is actually worse in terms of the emissions. The thing is, we grow so many cows that when you take the per cow emissions times the just sheer number of cows we grow, the climate emissions from cows are way, way higher than from goat or sheep. So it really gets down to this question, and it was central to our research, of whether you're looking at the per pound emissions or the total production volume emissions from food. And both are really important. The first part, the per pound, is really kind of at the scale of our individual choice. What happens when we choose a steak versus pasta at the restaurant? What does that mean for our personal choice? But for global food production at kind of the national or international scale and trade decisions and food policy, we really have to pay attention to the volume of production because that's where the footprint really comes from. And if we want to make a difference at a planetary scale, we need to pay attention to that volume of production. You know, this is a really interesting discussion, but for a lot of people to process it, they have to be able to relate it to their everyday dietary choices, right? So what about personal choice? Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to emphasize that personal choice makes a difference when you collectively add up millions or tens of millions or all 8 billion people on the planet. If we all make small choices, they add up. These kinds of choices can include small shifts in our diet. Maybe if you have beef five times a week, try to shift to three times a week. You know, if you're willing to cut it all out, fine, but you don't have to make, you know, radical changes to your diet to really make a big difference. So eat a little bit less meat is a great way to have a really positive benefit for the planet. And then add in things, substitute things like shellfish, like mussels, oysters, clams. These are really nutritious for you. They're actually positive for the environment. When you grow them or harvest them, they create habitat rather than destroying habitat. They can actually clean the water of nutrients uh, from pollution to help make it cleaner water and get a great food in your diet. So these are some simple things you can do that don't take a radical change to your diet. You can make small choices and make a big difference. Yeah, I guess it might be a big leap for someone to go from beef to clams and all kinds of creatures like that, eh? It is, and I'm deeply aware of how sticky people's diets are. We grow up eating the food that our parents made for us or that our community is used to eating, and to change that is really hard. And so that's why I emphasize you don't have to make these, you know, radical or even big changes, even small shifts, just a little bit less of some of these things that are having a big impact on the environment can really make a difference when added up. So start small. And for vegans, the news isn't that great either, I guess. Can you talk about rice and wheat? Yeah, and this gets back to this aspect of our work where we pay attention to the volume of production. And we grow so much rice and wheat as a commodity that it has a very large environmental footprint. So per pound, they're 
pretty good options, rice and wheat, but the volume of production is just vast. And in fact, rice actually has a pretty high greenhouse gas emissions component to it. It's always been known about that. And that plus the huge volume makes it a really big footprint on our planet. And you know, interesting, I've heard, I haven't totally confirmed the scale to which this is being done, but China is looking to replace some of its rice production with potatoes is one of the ways that they're trying to reduce their climate emissions and meet some of the Paris Agreement efforts to mitigate climate change. So when China is considering reducing rice, you know there's something going on there, right? That, that would be a big deal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So even things that are pretty good, if we eat a lot of them, they're going to have a footprint on our planet. But again, little by little, bite by bite, you can make progress on this and hopefully get joy out of knowing more about where your food comes from. Little by little, bite by bite, baby steps, great messages. This has been a fascinating discussion, Ben Halpern. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. Wonderful to chat with you. We've been talking today about making livestock production sustainable. And we've heard that the soil has some benefits from having animals graze the land. We've also heard that if we reduce our meat consumption, we reduce the industry's carbon footprint. But for some people, there's another reason we should be changing how we eat. Animal rights. Camille Labchuk is a lawyer and executive director of Animal Justice, an organization that leads the legal fight for animals in Canada. Camille Lapchuk, welcome to Hot Politics. Great to be here, David. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection of animal rights and climate change? So I think a lot of people are reconsidering ways that they interact in this world in terms of the impact that they cause on animals and the planet. It doesn't take very much thinking before you come to the conclusion that your food choices have a lot to do with that. You know, we know that climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, agriculture sector produces about 14% of those on, on the global scale. That's likely an underestimation, but that's a UN number. And if we're to meet target goals of reducing those emissions drastically by 2050, that means that we can't continue consuming meat on the scale that we do right now. And I think a lot of people are starting to appreciate that. And there's a phenomenon where if you start to, to learn one aspect of the, the food system and how animals are treated within it, um, it's pretty easy to start seeing other problems in it as well. So I often find that people who are motivated by climate change goals or the environment to start thinking about their food choices, they might decide to reduce their meat consumption, try more plant-based foods, eat more chickpeas. They often learn more about the animal protection issues as well and the standard practices on farms like these tiny cages, like intensive confinement, like the secrecy. And they become motivated to move away from that type of meat-heavy diet for a few different reasons. So is your message then a split one? On the one hand, you want to uh, eliminate the cruelty to animals, but on the other hand, you're saying, well, don't eat meat. Is it a split message? The planet's not going to abandon eating meat tomorrow. You know, we very clearly have to reduce consumption by a drastic amount to meet our climate goals. And that's just not, not just me saying that, that's the United Nations scientists. So, you know, for sure we have to reduce the amount of uh, meat that we consume and that reduces the number of animals who are factory farmed. When we say farm, many people uh, imagine grass and trees and animals roaming around. Does this fit into the reality of how farms are in Canada? You know, frankly, this ideal of Old McDonald's bucolic pasture is at this point a myth. Old McDonald's farm, for all intents and purposes, no longer exists. That's certainly not where the food that you go and buy at the grocery store is coming from. You know, just for example, 
the number of chicken farms in Canada has dropped drastically from 1976 to around 100,000 farms to around 30,000 farms. Uh, but the number of chickens on those farms has massively increased times seven, so that we now have an average of about 6,000 chickens on a farm today. Uh, you could say the same thing with pretty much every other sector, including pigs. So we've really uh, modified the system. And the idea that people have of open pastures, animals getting fresh air, interacting freely in, in meadows is just no longer reality. We've spoken to farmers uh, on this podcast about how they raise their animals in a pasture in a sustainable way. Is that a solution to industrial farming? Yeah, for sure. There's a handful of farmers that are able to do that, but um, it's it's not a solution on the scale that we're cons currently consuming meat. You know, one issue with actually providing pasture for animals is that it requires the pasture, it requires land. Um, you could put several thousand chickens inside a tiny barn, or you could put several hundred chickens inside, uh, you know, a smaller type of pasture. You simply need more land to do that. And the scale of meat consumption in society today is simply too enormous to accommodate that type of land use. Already, so much of the land on this planet is is used to to grow animals. Um, it's, you know, it's a massive amount of the planetary ice-free surface is already devoted to animal agriculture. And the idea of trying to ramp that up even further to accommodate, you know, grass-fed, free-range outdoor animals is just a, a mathematical impossibility. So I think, you know, you could imagine a food system that has some degree of better conditions and animals able to access the outdoors, but um, there would have to be just a massive reduction in the number of animals farmed and the amount of meat that we as a society consume. So when we're in a store and we're shopping for meat, we can often see stickers of climate-friendly certifications on products. Can private firms be trusted with this responsibility? That's a really tricky one for me to have any trust in those certification schemes. The reality is that they're privately managed certification schemes where you as a member of the public don't really have much of a right to find out much more about what went into that process than just seeing the sticker on the package of chicken or beef. Generally, how those schemes work is they will require farms to meet a certain standard. Um, in many cases, it's, it's barely above the industry standard. Um, and they'll do a certification inspection early on, and then probably those farms will never get inspected again. So I don't think that they provide much assurance uh, around the idea of animal welfare because they're just not robust, well-inspected systems, and they don't have any degree of transparency. If I follow the thread of this discussion so far, we're basically saying that either you don't eat meat at all, which would solve a lot of these problems, or if you're going to eat meat that is raised using humane practices, then it's going to cost you more. So either you pay more for your meat, but you don't eat it at all. Yeah, you know, I think there's very amazing products coming on the marketplace these days that really simulate the taste and mouthfeel and experience of eating meat. Um, we've got products now like Beyond Burgers and Impossible Food Burgers. Um, those are pretty good. But and they're also very expensive. Yeah, you know, compared to beef, they're they're on a similar plane. So, uh, you know, I, I think those are a little bit more expensive than, say, chickpeas, for instance, which is another great option. You know, many cultures around the world have a very legume-heavy chickpea, lentil, uh, grain-based um, diet already. And, uh, you know, so there's a lot of folks, especially in, you know, very diverse country like Canada, who've got cultural um, paths that are very linked to eating those types of foods. And so that's a great direction to move in. And, you know, we're also seeing 
and I think this offers a lot of hope for the future, is the idea of cellular produced meat. So meat that's produced inside bioreactors from animal cells that's grown outside the animal and doesn't actually involve slaughtering an animal. You can save so much energy inputs into producing that meat because you're not keeping an animal alive for many, many years before you slaughter them and then consume their body. So that's a huge caloric and energetic saving. And the technology is still young, but there's huge promise there too. So what do you say to people who, who might say to you, why should I change my eating habits? So the climate is a great reason to, you know, think about shifting your diet. Actually, changing our diets is one of the best ways that we as individuals can make an impact for the planet. I know so many of us feel frustrated when we see governments not taking the type of firm action they need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and rein in the oil industries, find efficiencies in the economy. It's frustrating to feel like you're on the outside and feel disempowered as a citizen. And I think of dietary change as one way that we can take that power back and uh, have some degree of control over the emissions that we produce for ourselves. So that's a good one. So what is the role of government in balancing uh, support for ranchers while reducing livestock's climate footprint? Yeah, you know, frankly, I think government has not done a very good job of um, pushing food policy in the direction it needs to go in. We subsidize meat and dairy and egg production to a massive degree. It's literally billions of dollars going out the door to support these industries. What we want to see instead and where I think government needs to start going is looking at how we start shifting that food system more towards plant-based production and, you know, these real next-gen exciting new types of plant-based protein products. You know, there's hundreds of companies it feels like popping up every month. Uh, you know, there's one company a friend of mine has in Toronto that's producing salmon, but it's made from plants, looks raw, and it cooks just like real salmon does. That's just one example of, you know, efforts made to shift the food system in a more sustainable direction. And we've seen some government support at the federal level already for these types of, you know, companies and these types of plant-based protein initiatives. And that's really great. Camille Lapchuk, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation. It's been a joy talking to you, David. Thank you. There are so many elements of food production and our consumption that need to be considered as we grapple with what we, as individuals, can do to help the environment. Today's guests made it clear that the point is not to feel bad about our choices, but to consider that every change or adjustment can make a difference. That's it for Hot Politics today. Tell us what you think of this episode or podcast on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. The managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. The associate producer is Zara Kozema. Our publisher is Linda Solomon Wood. I'm David Mackay. Next week, it's Maxed Out with Max Fawcett. See you in two weeks. <laughs>